in Chad today, the heat was bad, 100 degrees. For Thursday, January 3rd, this is PRI's The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston. Charges are filed against five men in the rape case that sparked outrage in India. We'll hear from a rape survivor heartened by the mix of protesters demanding change on the streets of Delhi. A lot of women came up and a surprisingly equal number of men came out. They were supporting this whole movement. We need more men like them. And later, a 15-year-old fights to change the name law in Iceland. The law says that you cannot give a girl boy's name and vice versa. Plus, the art of turning dust into gold. All that's coming up later on the show. First, news. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in theaters everywhere tomorrow. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The outrage in India has not subsided. For almost three weeks now, protesters have been out in the streets demanding an end to violence against women. The outrage was sparked by the brutal gang rape of a 23-year-old university student who died last weekend. Today, Indian authorities filed rape and murder charges against five of her alleged assailants. A sixth is undergoing tests to determine if he's an adult or a minor. The trial is due to be held in a fast-track court, with hearings beginning as early as this weekend. The crime horrified Indians and sparked a national debate about the treatment of women. Men have this view that they can just go out and violate women and use them and abuse them as commodities to be bought and sold and exploited. That's an excerpt from an interview we'll hear in a few minutes about a poll that ranked India one of the worst places in the world to be a woman. We begin our coverage, though, by hearing from someone who's very familiar with the challenges facing women in India. This woman is a rape survivor. We're not using her name here. She's been among the thousands of protesters demanding justice for women in India. In a conversation with the BBC's Andrew North in Delhi, she recounted how she was treated after she was raped. The medical examiner had no sensitivity at all. You know, she was absolutely inhuman. The way she was examining me, you know, and obviously it was extremely painful for me, you know. You know, for a moment I just stopped existing as a person and I just became a person who was raped. And can you tell me more about what happened then in the hospital? You said they called out for you. I was waiting at the reception and someone just called me as... Okay, now call uh, the lady who was raped. That sound still echoes in my head. I understand you were also uh, pressured into trying to give up the case. Can you tell us how they tried to do that? The defence lawyer met one of, I mean, my friend, and he came up with something like, okay, get them married, get, you know, done with this whole case. Even his parents tried to approach one of the witnesses, you know, that, you know, we should drop the case. You were urged to get married to the man who raped you? Yes, I was. As a way of um, getting you to just Get done with this it. case and forgive him for whatever he did, get married to him. You said you were very worried about the stigma that you would suffer as a result of being raped. How 
deep-rooted do you think that is, that mindset? You know, in India, a lot of importance is given to a woman's, a girl's virginity. The moment you lose it, you've lost all the respect. I grew up thinking that if you're raped, then you're doomed. People would not accept you. They're going to ostracize you. But, you know, genuinely in my case, my parents were the biggest strength. You know, I had a strong support system. And I would, I doubt if a lot of women have such a strong support system. A lot of these cases don't even get reported. Women are scared to report these cases. You, you were on the protests yourself. You know, the best part that I liked about going there is there were a lot of men and women who had similar thinking. I feel that people became more vocal. Everyone was sharing their story. People were coming up with a lot of, you know, suggestions whatever they feel that should be the change you know a lot of women came up and surprisingly equal number of men came out they were supporting this whole movement we need more men like them from delhi those were the thoughts of a survivor of rape she was speaking with the bbc's andrew north as we mentioned earlier india ranks as one of the worst places in the world to be a woman according to a recent poll the poll was conducted by trust law a website set up by the thomson reuters foundation to provide legal assistance and information on good governance and women's rights. They asked over 350 gender specialists around the globe to assess the best and worst places to be a woman among the world's biggest economies. India ranked last out of the G20 countries. Nita Bala is South Asia correspondent for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. She says much of the problem in India is rooted in the country's gradual transition from traditional society to modern nation. As the society is evolving, people are asking questions about social rights and these deeply patriarchal, feudal views that have existed for centuries of women being seen as the property. First, when they're born, they are the property of their fathers. Then when they're married, they are the property of their husbands. The idea of women just being childbearers and and homemakers is now being questioned. And all of these, these views of women being subservient, of course, men then have this view that they can just go out and and violate women and and use them and abuse them. Now, if we look at one problem uh, endemic to India, uh, slavery, it's a problem all over the world, but its visibility varies depending on where you go. In India, how visible is, is slavery? And are women the primary victims of slavery? In the the homes, in the middle class homes, one wouldn't call it slavery. I mean, women are now working and this is what we see is this irony of India. We have an India where we have, you know, the, the, the country's most powerful politician, Sonia Gandhi, is a woman. Mm. Our, our, pres, our former president was a woman. Um, the, one of the biggest leaders in India's political history, Indira Gandhi, was a woman. You know, we have millions of gods in Hindu in the Hindu religion. Many of them are women, and we are told to worship, you know, the woman as a goddess in our home. But of course, that does not translate on the ground. Where, where so is a, where is a disconnect? We see a situation where we've seen um, people talk about rape and sexual violence. Yet at the same time, we have this huge problem of domestic violence. So people are not linking rape and sexual violence with the other issues, such as, you know, widows who deserve to have their land rights recognized. Uh, Unborn girls in this country are are aborted, you know, about 12 million female fetuses. Infanticide, yeah. uh, Yes, have been aborted in the last um, three decades because girls are considered a burden. 
So, so, so Nita, do you think that all these connections between these various issues and sexual violence need to be made before anything can improve? Absolutely. I mean, the reaction so far has been very knee-jerk. It has been about, okay, let's deal with safety for women in Delhi. So let's put more women in the police force, which is definitely needed. Let's strengthen laws against sexual violence, which is definitely needed. But nobody really is talking about a deeper issue of changing mindsets, about when we only have 11% of, of women in politics, and they are the ones that really are the ones that can pass the laws and bring in place the policies, um, then there's not really that much hope. Nita Bala, South Asia correspondent for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Very good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. For the record, in that trust law poll, the country ranked number one as the best place to be a woman was Canada. And the U.S., well, we only ranked number six. India's neighbor Pakistan wasn't ranked in that poll, but a recent case there is proof that Pakistani women and girls face their own challenges. We're talking about the case of Malala Yousafzai. She's a young schoolgirl shot by Taliban gunmen in October as punishment for advocating for girls' education. Miraculously, she survived the attack and was later airlifted out of Pakistan en route to a hospital in England. In the days after her shooting, Pakistan's president, Asif Ali Zardari, pledged to increase spending on girls' education by $10 million. We stand committed to the women of the world and Pakistan for gender equality, for schools, for colleges, for equal opportunity in jobs. Now Pakistan has officially named Malala's father, Zia Uddin Yousafzai, education attaché at the Pakistani consulate in Birmingham. That's to ensure that the Yousafzai family can legally stay in England, away from the Taliban, which has threatened to kill both father and daughter for their continued activism. Right now in Pakistan, it's wedding season, and that means jewelry markets are bustling with prospective buyers. Brides-to-be examine intricate sets of gold and brightly lit stores. These shoppers unknowingly leave behind a bit of treasure, but only for those who know the secrets of turning dirt into gold. From Rawalpindi, reporter Binish Ahmed explains. In a few hours, Rawalpindi's bazaar will be packed. Donkeys will bray as they're loaded up with sacks of flour. Rickshaws will blare their horns, and vendors selling everything from slices of coconut to light bulbs will call for customers. But for now, the market is nearly empty. The only sounds that can be heard in these early hours are the scrapes of bristles against pavement. Afsaru Nakis, on hands and knees, painstakingly sweeps every inch of the street with an old shoe brush. He and his young son, Asit, aren't collecting trash. They're looking for gold dust that blows out of the glittering jewelry shops around them. Along these are teeny tiny bits of gold, like dust or sand. Afsarun makes a living separating the precious metal from a heap of dust. He says it's nearly impossible to explain how it works. If you want to know, you'll have to come to my shop at noon and I'll show you. A dark, narrow staircase leads up to Afsarun's makeshift lab. It isn't a lab in any serious way, but that doesn't mean he isn't working through some serious and dangerous chemical procedures. But first, he sifts through the sediment for rocks and bits of trash. 
of Sarun then ladles burbling acid over the dirt piles. Set over heat, the acid mixture coughs up a caustic cloud of mustard yellow smoke that soon turns emerald green and then a deep blue. The blue smoke lets Afsarun know that it's time to drop a glistening ball of mercury into the mix. All the material is left outside. The mercury holds in all the gold. The only thing that's left to do is push the silvery ball through some cheesecloth. Three days of sweeping and hours of extracting leave Afsarun with a pea-sized ball of pure gold. Afsarun's son, Asad, who's about 10 years old, shyly watches from the corner. His father tells him to stay clear of the chemicals. I don't let him sit next to me when I'm working with chemicals. I send him out. He's a kid. He can't handle the smoke. Afsarun fully realizes this business is a dangerous one, and he'd rather his son didn't get involved. I'm stuck here because of some personal difficulties, but I'd prefer my son does not get trapped in this world. I think he's better off if he would study and eventually start a business or get a job. A lot of people have died from the use of these chemicals. The smoke makes you weak, it tears at your insides. For now, the gaunt 45-year-old accepts the hazards. He hands the gold he's collected to a dealer and makes what averages out to be about $8 a day. Afsarun says the amount is barely enough to put food on the table and pay tuition for the three of his eight kids who are in school. But the street alchemist doesn't want to take up a different line of work. Sometimes, he says, he gets lucky and finds diamonds or even a whole ring. As wedding season comes to a peak, Afsarun Nakis is hoping he'll sweep up a small treasure. For the world, I'm Binish Ahmed, Islamabad. Still ahead, want to buy a knockoff Louis Vuitton bag? How about a knockoff Frank Gehry office building? That's ahead on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at MedtronicFoundation.org. And by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski from the director of Goodwill Hunting in theaters everywhere tomorrow. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Al Jazeera used to seek respectability. The TV network, based in Qatar and funded by the government there, was once seen by many Americans as a network that sympathizes with terrorists. For years, Al Jazeera has struggled to overcome that perception. Now it's trying to do so by purchasing a new channel in the U.S. The channel, sold this week to Al Jazeera, is Current, a cable news outlet founded and owned by, among others, former Vice President Al Gore. Al Jazeera says it plans to shut it down and replace it with its own programming, most of it produced here in the U.S. Brian Stelter writes about this on the New York Times Media Decoder blog. So Al Jazeera has been incredibly persistent in its attempt to reach American audiences, Brian. So this marks what seems to be a bold move for them. Uh, Given, though, that this is a country that hasn't given Al Jazeera a big audience or much respect, what do they want from this market? I think Al Jazeera looks at the United States the way all other global media companies do and sees that it won't be complete, so to speak, without access to the audience here. The United States is an influential, affluent audience of trendsetters, so to speak, of diplomats, of agenda setters, 
all of the people that you want to at least have the opportunity to talk to, uh, even if they tend not to always tune in. And until now, it's been very hard for Al Jazeera to reach those people. This gives them another way to do it. How many Americans does Al Jazeera International currently reach, do you know? It's on in a handful of cities, including Washington, D.C., New York, Toledo, Burlington, and then that's about it. It is streamed on the internet, so if you really want to try hard, you can watch online. But, uh, you know, we're talking about one or two percent of the country at most that now accesses it. Now, Current TV is running on Time Warner Cable, which was planning to drop it and are apparently dropping it even faster now that Al Jazeera owns it. Uh, so, So how would Al Jazeera run without the support of a major cable company? It appears that Al Jazeera has uh, received support from the other companies that currently carry current, and that's through Comcast, that's DirecTV, Dish, AT&T, Verizon. They've all consented to this sale. They say they'll continue to carry this channel when it becomes Al Jazeera. But without Time Warner Cable, they will lose about 10 million homes at the outset. Al Jazeera says it'll start off somewhere around 40 million homes. That's a huge leap forward for them. But I suspect Al Jazeera might be willing to pay distributors for the right to be on their systems. There is some precedent for that. Fox News, when it started in the mid-1990s, paid to get on the cable system here in New York City for that very reason. They needed to reach that influential audience in New York City in order to have a channel. Of course, Al Jazeera, because it is owned by the government of Qatar, has even deeper pockets than the owners of Fox News. So it's possible they're willing to to cut deals to get on here. I'm wondering if uh, Al Jazeera has a model for breaking into the American market. I mean, I think of another international broadcaster, BBC, that uh, opened up BBC America. Is there a similarity? There is. You know, the BBC put on a nightly newscast from Washington, and Al Jazeera says it's going to put on a lot of programming from New York and other U.S. cities. It says that about 60 percent of its programming here in the U.S. will come from the U.S. The other 40 percent will come from Doha, where Al Jazeera English is based and where Al Jazeera Arabic is based. Clearly, they believe that to get an American audience, they're going to have to produce news in America. And they're going to have to cover the U.S. the way they cover the rest of the world. And what do you think, Brian? Do you think it'll make a difference being on its own network in the United States? Can they build an audience here, do you think? I think it'll be very tough going, especially in the beginning, to build an audience, just as it was for Fox News, as it was for MSNBC. But we're sort of in a new mini golden age of international news here in the United States with access to the BBC World News and with access to French and Russian and Chinese and other sources. Even if the audiences aren't big, at least viewers have the opportunity to access them. In the past, they didn't even have the choice. Brian Stelter, New York Times media reporter. Very good to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you. One of the great pleasures and challenges of becoming a parent is choosing a name. Do you honor family members, mimic celebrities, or somehow reflect your personality, or perhaps try to reflect the spirit of the times? Well, there are a few countries out there where many of those choices are, in fact, illegal. Take the case of a 15-year-old girl in Iceland. She's currently suing the government for the right to legally use the name given to her by her mother. Her name is Blair, which means light breeze in Icelandic, but it's not on the list approved by the government. Sven Gudmarsson is a reporter for the Icelandic National Broadcast Service. Sven, may I just say, first of all, that any name that means light breeze ought to be on the list. Um, Tell me, though, why it's taken so long for her name to become an issue. 
Uh, I think it has something to do with the fact that she is now uh, becoming 15 years old, meaning that she is now applying for bank account and soon getting her driving license and so on. So, I mean, I think this has been a mild nuisance to her mother, but now this is becoming a real problem for her. Right, and she wants a name, presumably. What what name has Blair been using instead of Blair for all her 15 years? Unofficially, she is just called Blyde. Her friends call her Blyde. Oh, her family calls her Blyde. And, uh, what does the uh, Icelandic government call her? She's simply just called Girl. <laughs> girl really? Björk's daughter. Oh, my gosh. So that girl is, uh, and then her last name. Yeah. Why is Iceland so strict about the names it allows? I think it has partly something to do with some kind of like nationalist view that... Uh, the government and the authorities have been quite strict that Icelandic names must uh, be in line with the Icelandic grammar and pronunciation rules. So, uh, therefore, uh, a list has been compiled with approximately 2,000 male and 2,000 female names, which everybody must pick from. New names are continuously being added to the list, but Blair, the female version that is, has mm. not been approved simply because there is a male name also, which is incidentally Blyde. So therefore, uh, the law says that you cannot give a girl boy's name and vice versa. So therefore, this girl has not been allowed to be named Blyde. Because it's a boy's name? It is a boy's name, but it is also a girl's name, and uh, which is quite... Uh, uh, which is a curious fact that that has a different declination than the boys' version of, uh, of Blight. How, how old is this law? When did Iceland close the door on name creation? Well, this has always been rather strict, but uh, I think the current le- legislation is from the early 90s. So, in fact, uh, the, the early said, 90s, I thought y- this is something that went back like, I don't know, centuries. Yeah, uh, I, at the time, the legislator said that uh, this was actually being too, uh, the, the, that they were actually uh, relaxing the law a little, a little bit because around this time, uh, we had quite a lot of, uh, like an influx of, of immigrants. So mm-hmm. that, that presented us with uh, new challenges when it came to names. Do, do people but, in Iceland generally support the law? Uh, yes and no. I think everybody more or less thinks that the, you shouldn't be allowed to give your child any name. But this case, for instance, I think most people are very sympathetic to the girl mm. who's, who wants to name, be named Blair. Right. And Blair is 15. Uh, has anyone else in Iceland ever successfully challenged this law before? Nobody has tried to take this uh, to court to challenge the decision of the, of the naming board. So this is a landmark case. But uh, it is uh, interesting that uh, there have been other women called Blair. So there are certainly precedents. Sven Gudmarsson with the Icelandic National Broadcast Service. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Chinese tourists are flocking to the United States and opening up their wallets. This tour guide says one recent visitor was pretty typical. One day he asked my co-worker, can you recommend me a good restaurant and bring me there? and the best restaurant in Boston, no matter how expensive. News coming up next. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. What happens when the New Year's editorial in a respected newspaper gets pulled and replaced by a censor's message? Well, that's what happened in Guangdong, China this week. It's part of a trend in recent months of the Chinese government increasingly trying to control the message. But with more than half a billion Chinese online, that's not as easy as it used to be. The world's Beijing correspondent Mary Kay Magstad is in our Boston studio today. Mary Kay, what happened in Guangdong precisely, and why is it getting so much attention online? Okay, so basically there was a well-known weekly columnist named Dai Yong who had put together a New Year's editorial for the front page called China's Dream, A Difficult Dream. And he was talking about the Chinese people's desire for greater freedom and rule of law journalists in China are used to having their articles censored. Certain lines, certain paragraphs are taken out. But in this case, the entire editorial was replaced by a shorter message from the Guangdong province censor, whose message was basically that China's dream, China's hopes can only be achieved by putting your faith in the new leader, Xi Jinping. You know, it sounded very old school, Mm. kind of the sort of thing that might have been said when Mao Zedong was still head of the party. And there's been a lot of chatter online, a lot of criticism of this move. Like, who do you think you are? What do you think this is? Removing an editorial completely. And why do you think that we're going to take seriously something like this? So the government is trying to exert more control, it seems, lately. Uh, Why now? What's going on? Well, we're in the middle of a leadership transition in China. The party leaders changed in November. The same people will also become state leaders of China in March at the National People's Congress. In the midst of this all, the party is very jittery. It knows that it has a lot of huge challenges that it's facing, a lot of policies that probably should have been changed a long time ago but weren't because the party doesn't really want to relinquish control of anything. One of the things that they seem to have decided to do is to squeeze control of the internet. They've been deleting Weibo accounts of activists, and they've been requiring that Weibo users now have to register with their real names and must be aware that if they say anything, quote unquote, illegal, that that could be pulled and there could be serious consequences. I mean, more than ever, Mary Kay, there seems to be this disconnect between what the government is trying to do, you know, living with this old construct with propaganda censors and the like, and how people both inside and outside China are perceiving it. Why is the government so tone deaf? It's a really good question. Uh, I think part of it is just habit. This is how the party has always functioned. And even as the party has been very pragmatic and flexible in moving into the modern age in terms of economic reform, I think it really fears political reform because it's not sure how many steps it can take in that direction before it loses control. So with the Chinese government trying hard to control the message during this transition, I'd love to know how this affects the way you operate, Mary Kay. Is it getting harder to report? It's not really getting that much harder to report. There had been new regulations put in place that said that foreign journalists could interview anyone who agreed to be interviewed. That was in sharp contrast to regulations before that said basically we had to ask permission for almost everything. Mm. When the various revolutions in the Middle East happened in early 2011, the government got really spooked by this, particularly when there was a an anonymous call online that Chinese too should gather for a jasmine revolution. Right, Around that. that time, the foreign ministry gathered various foreign correspondents, including me, and said, well, you know that regulation that said you can interview anyone who agrees to be interviewed? We're not changing the regulation, but you just didn't understand the nuances of the regulation. And that is, if we decide that 
it's a special circumstance, a special situation. We decide who you have to ask permission from. I see. And had you understood the nuance, Mary Kay? Not in that way, no. (laughs) But, okay, that said, you know, it was a little tense then. It's loosened up significantly since then. And so now the main thing that most foreign journalists are dealing with is that when you're trying to access information online, when you're trying to send a story, the internet is squeezed. But it's not just for foreign correspondents. It's for everyone in China. The World's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magzad, who is here in Boston with us for a couple of days. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. China has a middle class of some 300 million people, and more and more of them are traveling internationally. Europe remains a top destination, but American states are in hot competition for those Chinese tourists as well. California has a program in place to woo Chinese visitors, and Massachusetts would like to follow suit. The world's Jason Margolis has that story. It's no surprise that Chinese visitors come to New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. Those are their top three American destinations. Then there's the next tier, places like Boston. Chinese visitors come here primarily to see Harvard and MIT. Then they leave. Local businesses would like them to stay a bit longer, though. There's a simple reason. Chinese tour guide Zhou Lin Zhou with the group Sunshine Travel tells a story of a Chinese man who was recently visiting Boston with his teenage son on a college scouting trip. One day he asked my co-worker, can you recommend me a good restaurant and bring me there? And the best restaurant in Boston, no matter how expensive. Then he brought, my co-worker brought him to a restaurant. They spent $1,000 for two of them for a dinner. <laughs> yeah. Joe told this story to about 75 business people at the State House in Boston. They were gathered here for a tourism workshop geared at attracting Chinese visitors. Travelers from China rank ninth in terms of foreign visitors to the U.S., but they're the fastest-growing group by far. And they're the third biggest spenders when they travel internationally, only behind the Germans and the Americans. Evan Saunders offered some advice on how to tap into those Chinese wallets. Saunders is the CEO of Attract China. He helps American companies like hotels and restaurants get noticed online in China in a good way. One of his clients is the popular Boston restaurant Legal Seafoods. In China, this word legal really implying this very lawful, uh, maybe government-associated company that uh, is, is, you know, either involved in making sure people go to jail if they're not serving the right things. We, we market test these, and it really comes out that Chinese are very confused. Saunders is trying to eliminate that confusion by branding legal seafoods in China as America's best seafood destination. He's also making his client visible on the Chinese version of Google, where they're more likely to be seen. Habina Hao, who is originally from China and now works with the National Tour Association in Kentucky, says it's often the little things that resonate with foreign visitors. For example, Chinese people like soy milk in the morning, and they don't like it served cold. So use microwave if possible. Uh, You know, you can use glass, you can use a little mug and to weave them up before you serve, they will be so happy for the hot milk. And she says, put disposable slippers in the hotel room. That really makes them feel great. I'm just like home. I have a slipper now. Of course, everybody likes to feel catered to when they travel, no matter where they're from. Americans have long expected the option of American-style food when we travel abroad, and that most everybody will speak some English. David Ritchie directs sales and marketing for the Omni Parker House Hotel in Boston. He came to the State House to learn how to attract more Chinese travelers. 
He says he already knew about the slippers. But I, I didn't realize how important the milk and different little things that probably would make a difference uh, to people when they're staying. But he can't do too much more to cater to a specific group of visitors. For example, a few speakers suggested making Chinese food available at hotels. Richie balked at that. We invented the Boston cream pie, so we are the American iconic culinary institution. So any plans to add Chinese food or no? No, I don't think we ever have. I mean, I think we, we, we're staying with our, our concept. I think it works. That's the right strategy, says Donna Quadri, a professor of hospitality and tourism at NYU. She says touches like slippers for Asian travelers or tea for British visitors are nice, but... You don't want to be something you're not. And travelers really want the authentic experience. When my cousins from Italy come to uh, New York, you know what they want? They want steak and potatoes. Right. They want uh, an American hamburger from a neighborhood you know, tavern. They want things that are quintessentially American. She says it's a mistake to make sweeping generalizations about what people are looking for when they travel. But she said one thing everyone appreciates is hotel staff or guides who speak your language. Jackie Ennis with the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism emphasizes that. If 700 Chinese visitors show up on your doorstep for a museum tour and you don't have a Mandarin-speaking guide, it could be a little awkward. But that's something that each business has to do on its own. Many people I met at the State House in Boston said they're exploring things like Chinese menus or interpreters, but they aren't quite ready to commit. They better get moving. The U.S. Department of Commerce projects the number of Chinese visitors coming to the U.S. to nearly double within three years. For the world... I'm Jason Margolis in Boston. For tourists who travel to China, one thing they may find is the incredible array of designer goods. But caveat emptor, China is also the land of the knockoff. Knockoff designer handbags, knockoff blockbuster movies on DVDs. You get the picture. Intellectual property experts know this, but now it seems the knockoff has gone off the charts in terms of proportion in China. Ever heard of an architectural style being knocked off? Well, Zaha Hadid has. The Iraqi-British architect unveiled her designs for the Wangjing Soho complex in Beijing in 2011. It's now under construction, but a building that looks a lot like Hadid's is also going up in the city of Chongqing. Avi Friedman is professor of architecture at McGill University in Montreal. He was in China three weeks ago and was invited to take a tour of Zaha Hadid's building. Uh, Tell us, first of all, Avi Friedman, what uh, Ms. Hadid's building actually looks like. What are some of the features uh, she's used in her design plans? The building is typical of Zaha Hadid's work, which are continuous amebic-like forms stretching out uh, to all directions. And that building looks like layers put on top of each other, uh, creating sort of two hills that are connected to each other to form a very interesting exterior and also fascinating interior once you walk into that space. And a similar building is going up in Chongqing. I'm looking at uh, the pictures of uh, Ms. Hadid's building and the, uh, the other one. They look pretty similar. Uh, for your eyes, are the similarities too much to ignore? You can see that someone was inspired to a great degree by Zaha Hadid's work. Uh, but when I was in China, I visited two cities. I was in Beijing and Shanghai. And it is amazing how 
uh, Chinese architecture becoming uh, almost, as you say, a knockoff state of similar buildings. Would you go so far as to call it copycat architecture or knockoff architecture? Perhaps we need to um, get back a little bit, and, and inspiration in architecture is not new. If you were to look to history of architecture, you would see that there are many, many buildings that inspired by notable architectural architects like Le Corbusier and even Frank Gehry. You can see them around the world, and you can even make lineage not only between the building and the copied one, but even their components. But it seems to me that China crossed the line and they copy uh, things to a greater degree. But what happened is that it is very interesting to know how architects work in China. And this is, in my opinion, an evolutionary step. And how do they work in China? China invites top Western architects to design building in them. The foreign architects are allowed only to do the concept drawings. Once the concept drawing is finished, the working drawing and the construction drawing are prepared by what they call design institutes. When you come to think about it, the foreigners are giving their entire intellectual property to the Chinese government to run this institute in every city. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. I mean, they're just forking over their plans once the plans are drawn up. That's right. You know, a few years ago, architect Daniel Liebeskind urged architects to think carefully before working in China uh, over growing concerns that the country uh, doesn't really have a strong ethical record on this stuff. Is that a concern you've also heard from other designers and architects? I believe that he was right. And in architecture, copyright laws hardly exist, meaning that Everybody can be inspired by a shape as long as you change a few elements in that shape. So what I consider here is a really bridge of creative ethics. There is no ethical strong values in Chinese architecture that unfortunately trying to affect and give to this country that have very uh, strong creative power. When I was in China, I was in Beijing, I saw work by very creative local architects. They are merging, they are budding now, but unfortunately they're going to give themselves a bad name. Professor Avi Friedman, his latest book is The Nature of Place, A Search for Authenticity. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for uh, talking to me. Judge for yourself. You can see pictures of both Zaha Hadid's building and the alleged knockoff at theworld.org. So today's GeoQuiz was inspired by that fiscal cliff legislation you've heard so much about. At over 150 pages of legalese, the bill passed by Congress to avoid the fiscal cliff is not an easy read, but one section stands out. It's about rum. The bill extends a tax on all rum imported into the U.S. But most tax revenue collected on rums from Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands don't go to pay the deficit. It subsidizes rum production in those U.S. territories. Most other Caribbean region rum producers think that's unfair. Our question for you is, where in the Caribbean region would you find the oldest continuously producing rum distillery? Name the country where rum's been made in wooden stills, along the banks of the Demerara River since the 17th century. We'll be back with the answer and more on the subsidy in just a bit.
This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let's talk about rum and that obscure rum tax that was just extended by the fiscal cliff bill. For almost a century, Uncle Sam has collected excise taxes on Caribbean rum. No surprise there. But did you know that almost all of the tax placed on rum from Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands specifically go right back to those territories, which then reinvest the money in rum production? That has rum exporting nations elsewhere in the Caribbean fuming. Edward Hamilton writes and blogs about rum. Tell us why Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands get this benefit, Ed. Well, it dates back almost 100 years. It was a way for the U.S. government to promote or subsidize the economies of the Caribbean. Uh, Puerto Rico has been getting this uh, what they call a cover over tax, which is basically just a rebate of the federal tax on alcohol that's uh, shipped from the, the islands of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Puerto Rico has been getting it since 1917. And then in 1954, the U.S. FBI said, oh, well, we need that, too. And the uh, U.S. government said, sure, we'll give it to you. How much money are we talking about? Well, it's somewhere in the order of $500 million a year right now, uh, which doesn't seem like a lot of money. But there's federal tax, and the federal tax is roughly $2.25 a a bottle. If you look at, say, an 80-proof bottle, a 750-milliliter 80-proof bottle, Now, what does Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands actually do with this money? Well, in Puerto Rico, it is used primarily to promote Puerto Rican rum. And some of that money goes back to the rum producers themselves. The reason we're talking today is in the Virgin Islands, 50% of that money goes directly to a company that built a new rum distillery, Diageo. And as it turns out, today they are getting back more money than it actually even costs them to make the product. So imagine you don't even have to sell your product. All you have to do is shove it out the door and you get back more than your cost of production. Wow. Well, I'm sure other Caribbean nations don't see the playing field as exactly level, to say the least. Even as a cartel, though, can they compete? I believe they can. And one of the things that I see is in any product, whether we're talking about rum or automobiles or uh, the clothes that we're wearing, where do these things come from? What is the history of them? And I see consumers as being more concerned with the authenticity and the transparency of all of the products that they use and buy and consume. When you look at that, uh, there are a lot of things that the other rum producing companies can do to really compete with these products that are basically being subsidized. What if the subsidy was thrown out? I mean, it was extended by the fiscal cliff bill, but you know, what would be the impact if that subsidy wasn't there anymore for the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico? Well, it would cost them uh, roughly $500 million a year in revenue, but it would raise the cost of their products in the market. That would change the economic picture for them considerably. Rum goes back centuries, though. What, what is the oldest rum-producing country or place in the Caribbean? In Puerto Rico, uh, rum was made in the early 1500s. But the oldest continuously producing area is in Guyana uh, that dates back to 1670. Guyanese rum has the distinction of being called Demerara rum. It's made on the banks of the Demerara River. And we recognize that as a heavy, rich tobacco-flavored rum. I start my day with a uh, rum from Martinique, and I like to finish my day with an old-aged rum from Guyana or some of the other islands. 
Guyana, the answer to our geo-quiz today, producing rum since uh, the 17th century. Edward Hamilton writes and blogs about rum. He also runs a website called the Ministry of Rum. Thank you so much, Ed. Thank you for having me. The world's William Troop has a favorite rum, and it's not from Puerto Rico. Check out his blog at theworld.org. It's been a sad month for fans of Indian music. Many were familiar with Ravi Shankar, who died in December. But unless you're a hardcore fan, you probably never heard of M.S. Gopalakrishnan. He died early this morning in Chennai at the age of 82. Gopalakrishnan played an instrument people all over the globe are familiar with, the violin, but he created new playing techniques that brought out the full power of the instrument in an Indian context. The world's Arun Roth has this appreciation. For Westerners, and even a lot of Indians, South Indian classical, or Carnatic music, isn't especially accessible. It can seem a bit cerebral and abstract. It sure ain't Bollywood. M.S. Gopalakrishnan, or MSG to his followers, may have been brainy, but not in any way cold or detached. As complex as the scales and rhythms of Carnatic music can get, there's always a blood-red human passion running through his music. The violin was first adapted to Indian classical music in the 19th century. The fretless instrument required no modification, just a retuning to play Indian scales. Only one other Indian instrument with strings, the sarangi, could produce long, drawn-out lines that resembled the human voice. But the sarangi lacks that luscious, warm sonority of the violin. But MSG thought the violin had even more potential. Indian musicians like to move quickly up and down a scale. Gopalakrishnan developed a technique to play quickly over a whole octave using only one finger on one string. On witnessing MSG's technique, violinist Yehudi Menuhin said, I have not heard such a violin in all my travels, marveling at all the sounds MSG could get on the G string alone. MSG also invented a bowing technique that, along with his fingering, softened the edges of the music. It helps the ear follow the melody more fluidly. Maybe that explains why MSG's music sounds so warm, human, and vocal. While he was a restless innovator, it's interesting to note that Gopalakrishnan seemed to have no interest in the type of East-West fusion experiments that garnered such fame for Ravi Shankar. He was adventurous but stayed within the bounds of the classical tradition. Gopalakrishnan did do fusion, but for him, that meant working with Indian musicians from the north. These duets, known as Jukalbandi, broke down musical barriers inside India. There has long been a cultural tension between the north and the south in India. MSG's duets showed that the two could work in harmony, as in this duet with North Indian sarangi player Sultan Khan. Gopalakrishnan leaves behind a rich legacy. In addition to his musical innovations, he was a passionate teacher. Among his many protégés is his daughter Namrata, herself one of India's most acclaimed violinists. For the world, I'm Arun Ra.
And that is Narmada playing a duet with her father, the late M.S. Gopalakrishnan. You can find a video of their duet at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for joining us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI, Public Radio International.